Well, good morning, New Life Church. My name is Eric, and I'm one of the pastors here. We're going to be in Matthew 15 as we continue our walk through the story of Jesus. So if you would open your Bibles, put them on your laps, I would love for you to read along. We will be starting in verse 21 there in chapter 15. Have you ever been on the outside and wanted to be on the inside? Have you ever been on the out and looked in and thought, "Ah, that is good, that is where I want to be? We feel this when we were children. Perhaps you remember being on the playground. You see the kids playing a game and you want to participate, but you are not sure how to jump in. Maybe you don't know the kids yet. Maybe you don't even know what the game is, but man, that is where I want to be. How do I get in? I'm on the outside. I want to get in. We feel this when we are older and there's the group of people that looks like the coolest and the funnest people to be around, maybe in high school. And I'm not talking about just the clique, the cool kids. I'm talking about the good and noble people that you just want to be close to. How do I get from here to there? Even as adults, it is the standing on the edge of the conversation and trying to figure out, how do I jump in? Do I just say, hi guys, I'm Eric, this is a fascinating conversation? Or do you wait? Is there like a well-placed comment you can put or a well-placed question? Do you wait for an invite? Are they going to ask you to join? Sometimes the need is not just a desire for a new relationship, but it is an urgent necessity to be connected to the right people. Then the question is, how do I ask for help? How do I plead my case? Maybe you need a mentor or that person who has done the thing you are hoping to do and they have already done it and already succeeded at it. How do I get connected to them? How can they help me? Or you need someone's specific skills or expertise. How do I get close? How do I get his ear? How do I get her attention? How do I get an audience? This morning, we will see that process play out with Jesus and someone on the outside. Someone outside the group, outside the family, outside the circle. And in this particularly acute exchange, we will see that the faithful outside the family of Israel also catch the mercy of Jesus. The faithful outside the family of Israel also catch the mercy of Jesus. So let's start reading. In chapter 15, this is verse 21 of Matthew. And Jesus went away from there. And withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Now, if you recall the past few weeks, Jesus has been having a rough go of it, to say the least. His cousin was murdered. He had tried to to take a break, but the crowds were massive. He continued serving and loving them, feeding thousands of people. And then, if you recall, he tried to get away again, and he went to the mountain, and then he walked on water. And then the Pharisees showed up, and he was tussling with them last week. He does a miracle, and they show up to argue about his protocol. Needless to say, it's been a tiring stint for Jesus, as he has been on mission in and around the Sea of Galilee. And now he goes away. Matthew says he withdrew from that area and he goes to Tyre and Sidon. 
We don't know if this is a little retreat, if he just wants a breather, or just a change of locale, or if he has something else in mind. But regardless, he withdraws. He withdraws to the area that is on the outskirts. This is the place of the Gentiles, the non-Jews. These would be the neighbors of what a Jew in this time would be thinking as the Jewish land. We're over here, neighbors are over there. This is where the others live, the Gentiles, the Goyim. This is notable because he has been staying largely around Galilee, hanging out in Jewish areas. He teaches in Jewish synagogues. He addresses Jewish practice and thinking. His ministry has been quite local and specifically to the Jewish people. His reach has been limited, and now he withdraws to the borderlands toward the outside. And what does Matthew say? And behold, which means watch this, something interesting is about to take place. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region. This is really something because the Canaanites, Gentiles, yes, but the Canaanites specifically were the enemies. The Canaanites were those people the people of Israel were against. If you read in the, in the beginning of this book, in the Old Testament, you can read about the abominable practices of the Canaanites and the demonic gods they worshipped. The desire of Israel was to get rid of them, not to hang out with them. And now in the story of Jesus, the story of the king from the people of Israel, withdrawing from his family's locale to the outskirts, we have the Gentile, the Canaanite, the other, the enemy, show up. And what does she say? Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. She comes crying, give me compassion by taking care of my daughter. Be merciful to me by relieving my daughter of her oppression. Banish the demon so that my daughter is made well. And did you catch what she said? Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. Have mercy on me, Lord, or my master and son of David. This is an appeal to the descendant of a particular family line. This is a Jewish referent. This is not just the appeal to a miracle worker or a healer. This is not even the appeal to a local teacher or a do-gooder. This is an appeal to a Jewish king, to the Jewish Messiah, the Jewish promised one that would come from the line of David. The David, you know David, the prototypical king of Israel. David, the ancestor by which all others are measured, and David, the David, which Jesus exceeds as an exemplar. This is the enemy of Israel appealing to the family line of the king of Israel, appealing to a particular promise and the coming of a rescuing Messiah. There is built-in friction and conflict and tension these families don't normally mix. And that is the view of the Jewish side and the Canaanite side. But also in this tension, there is a mom, a desperate mom with a sick daughter, a trapped daughter, a demonically oppressed daughter, 
a child who has physical and emotional and deep spiritual needs. And this mom is saying, who can help? And she has heard of the son of David. Heard echoes of what he has done and been doing around Galilee, and now he's withdrawn to the outskirts, to the boundary. And she sees her daughter, and nothing she has done so far has helped. And in her desperation, her desperation is such that she goes looking for Jesus, looking for this son of David, the promised one of her enemies. She goes looking for him and crying out as she arrives. Her desperation is audible. She wants in. She is on the outside looking into this family and this son and saying, I want the benefits of relationship with you. Have mercy on me. Have compassion on me. Relieve my daughter. Banish the demon. Rescue my daughter from the one who severely oppresses her. Unless we forget, Matthew is originally writing to an audience of Jews, those within the family. Those who long for the Son of David and the King Messiah, those who have instinctively felt all the tension in this story, those who would tighten up at the mention of the Canaanite woman, and those who would quizzically listen as this Canaanite appeals to the Son of David, to the Jewish Messiah. This is a key moment in the story Matthew is telling. A hinge is here in the story Matthew is telling, a hinge on which the entire story opens and expands. The outsider is coming to the king as he stands on the borderlands. And she says, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. And how does Jesus respond? Verse 23, but he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. Not a word. Not a word. She came all this way, not a word. She is desperate, not a word. She found him. Silence. She is actively crying out in the area where Jesus has withdrawn, and Jesus does not answer. And her crying doesn't stop. Her pleas for mercy do not stop. And it gets to the point where the disciples seem to be quite annoyed. I'm not sure how it is all set up. Maybe Jesus is here, and the disciples are there, and she is beyond continually crying out, and the disciples have had enough. So they come up to Jesus and beg him, urge him, send her away, for she is crying out after us. Now it is a little unclear what they mean, where it's translated here, send her away, but that's, that's how it's translated here in our scripture, in our Bible, our translation. But based on how Jesus responds, I think this is not just a, hey Jesus, will you get up and tell her to get lost? It could It could be an appeal to have her go on her way, but what might also be happening here is an urging to give her what she wants so she leaves. If you recall, when the centurion asked for help, Jesus healed his servant without being present. The servant wasn't there, and he went on his way. 
Maybe the disciples have this in mind. Just free her daughter so she leaves us alone. In any case, they urge him, do something because she is crying out after us. Her persistence is bringing results. And what does Jesus say to the disciples? He answered in verse 24, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This seems like an unexpected response from Jesus, yeah? Or maybe you were thinking, that's not what you're supposed to say. That doesn't feel right. We are on the hinge of the story. And things are turning. Before all this, Jesus has been focused on Israel. He has been in their towns, serving and healing their people, teaching in their synagogues, tussling with their leaders, feeding their families. In fact, these are the same words he said to his disciples back in Matthew 10. If you remember, do you recall when he sent the disciples out to proclaim the kingdom? This is what it says. In Matthew 10, verse 5, these, tw- these 12 Jesus sent out instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. In other words, in that initial mission, don't go to where Jesus has now withdrawn among the Gentiles. And as we have read since, that is what has been going on. All the parables were taught by the sea to the people of Israel. The healings have been to the people of Israel. He has not gone to other towns until this moment where he sits at the borderlands. And he is reminding the disciples that he was sent to the family, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The focus has been on that house He is a Jewish Messiah, the son of David after all. He is a king to be sure, but that line comes from David. And he has been going to the family of David to proclaim the kingdom. And now the family talks, Jesus talks to the disciple, the family talks and the woman stands at the distance on the outside hearing them and she presses in. Verse 25 But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. Now she comes close to Jesus and kneels. This is the language of worship, of reverence and honor and dependence. This is the same language used of the disciples worshiping Jesus in the boat. Do you remember in the midst of the storm? They worshiped him. This is the same word here. The family worshiped Jesus in the boat and the Canaanite woman worships Jesus on the ground in the midst of the family. And this ramps up her response. She is now not just requesting from the outside. She is worshiping and asking, Lord, help me. This is suffering driving her to meet the Savior. The initial resistance has given her a more fitting response. She is worshiping Jesus. The plan of Jesus is for those on the outside to come into the family of Jesus worshiping. And God can use many of our ill experiences to do this, right? The sickness of a child or the death of a friend. 
He can take our suffering to make our knees bend in worship where they were stood straight in obstinance before. He can use our suffering to remind us that we are not self-sufficient. And the God, the Creator, is not a mere last resort when our efforts prove deficient. Suffering can be a powerful clarifier. Friends, do not view your suffering as meaningless and inane, but take it as a prod to put your face to Jesus and your knees to the ground. That's what's happening for her. She's going the right direction. We are reading and we are thinking, yes, she is here, appealing to Jesus as who he is, the son of David, not just a teacher or a good miracle worker. Now she is worshiping, treating him as God. She appeals to the king and rightfully worships him. The hinge is swinging and turning. The door is opening. But how does Jesus respond? In verse 26, and he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Did anyone see this coming? I read this and feel deflated. You don't have to raise your hand, but did anyone wince? We just hit a speed bump, right? And who would rather this just not be there? Be honest in your mind. Ask yourself those questions. This may put you off, right? When you are put off by things in the Bible that are hard to explain, don't walk away. Press in. Press in knowing the character of Jesus as revealed to us in this book. And learn to trust the story of Scripture instead of merely your reactions to it. Think in your head, how is Jesus saying this? Who do I know Jesus to be? Is Jesus saying this with a scowl or with a smile? Do not just look at this single verse and think, I would never say this to someone. Now I can ignore all of this. Read more broadly and let Scripture help you read Scripture. One of the last times Jesus withdrew in Matthew was in Matthew 12. And this is how Jesus was described. In verse 18 it says, Behold, my servant, that's Jesus, whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will, he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. We know this about Jesus. And friend, maybe you don't know this about Jesus, but this is who Jesus is. In this narrative of Jesus, he is described this way. The author, Matthew, has told us Jesus is like this. And as we read, we must hold this in our hand as we continue the story. So whatever he is doing here, he is not bruising reeds or quenching smoldering wicks. He is not knocking down the weak or snuffing out the desperate. He is not stealing justice from the Gentiles or taking away the hope of the outsider. 
And whatever he is doing here, he is giving hope to the Gentiles. And this Canaanite woman is a Gentile to be sure, an outsider who desperately needs hope. So what is he doing? Jesus is still leaning into the descriptions of the family. And when the family gets together to eat their meal, who is often underneath the table? The family dogs, right? You dog owners know. And I'll admit, every time I read this, my mind goes to the street dogs. But these are the dogs of the family that the family would be responsible for. And there's even a diminutive flavor to the word. Little dog, small dog. So this word is closer to puppies than it is to strays. But still, who wants to be called a dog in any form? Not I. But Jesus here is leaning into the description of a particular relationship. The family gathers at the table and the parents are about to dish out the food. Would it make sense to take a big heaping scoop of the kid's favorite mac and cheese and put it in the dog bowl? No. When Mark tells this story, he adds the phrase, let the children be fed first. Jesus is saying it is not right to feed the family, the family dogs at the expense of the family. And of course he's right. Jesus has been on a particularly focused mission as a particularly Jewish Messiah to a particular Jewish family in a particularly Jewish place. And Jesus is communicating that the order makes sense. The family must be notified of the mercy of the coming king before others are notified. You tell your family when you're expecting a child before you tell the neighbors, right? And this is the order Jesus has been progressing through. And now he stands at the border. And the hinge is turning. And you have to ask yourself, does Jesus say this with a scowl or with a smile? Is he barking this out or beckoning engagement? And this desperate mother who wants connection with the king hears his response and presses in, engages all the more. She said in verse 27, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. This is incredible. The understanding of this woman and the desire to connect to Jesus is profound. She says, yes, Lord. My master, I agree with you. What you say is true. The family should be fed first. We don't neglect the children to the benefit of the family dog. But she does not stop with agreement. She continues her plea, and she knows the relationship Jesus describes and says the masters are responsible for feeding the dogs as well. And the dogs sit under the table at mealtime for a reason. The crumbs that fall during the meal. Kids throw food on the floor. Food falls, and the family dogs are ready to catch whatever comes their way. And she is saying, I just want some crumbs. Feed the family, yes, but I just want some crumbs. You are the master. You are the son of the table. I know my relationship to the table, and I'm going to sit underneath the table at my master's feet, ready to receive any of the crumbs that come my way. Friends, pray this way. 
agree with Jesus and plea all the more. May your prayers be given energy by her example. May we pray with abandon like she talked with Jesus. Yes, I agree with you, Jesus, because it would be folly to disagree with the king of creation, for Jesus does not speak falsely. And I do not stop there. I agree with you and I plead with you all the more, knowing who you are. One preacher said it this way, do not contradict a frowning truth of God, but bring up a smiling one to meet it. And that's what she's doing. If you know who Jesus is, you can press in all the more to his character. If you know he is wont to bring justice and hope, don't stop asking for justice and hope. If the answer to your prayer seems to be not yet, then cry out, how long, O Lord? Both of these things are true. The family must be fed first and the master is responsible and the crumbs fall from the table and she begs for some crumbs. Then Jesus answered in verse 28, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Great is your faith to press in from the outside and answer with such clarity. Great is your faith. This is the only time Matthew characterizes faith as great. And she was not even part of the family. Not a religious scholar or a pastor or a priest, the person you would expect to have the great faith. No one who you would expect. And think about this. When was the last time we heard about someone's faith? When was the last time in Matthew's story faith was characterized? It was of Peter, part of the family, one of the disciples no less, walking around with Jesus all the time. And what of his faith? How was his faith described? Little faith. That is what Jesus called him while he walked on the water. And what else do we know of Peter? The infamous story of his denial, right? Three times he was given the opportunity to voice his faithful connection to Jesus, the one he'd walked with for years, and three times he declined. Little faith. But this woman, outside the family, is given three opportunities to give up and turn away, to abandon connection with the object of her faith. And she pressed in all the more because she was seeing the one in whom her faith was secured. Seeing Jesus, the son of David, the banisher of demons, the one who can heal, the one who can remedy, the one who must be worshipped. She presses in and this is the evidence of great faith. Great convictions of things she had not yet seen. An assurance of things she had hoped for. She was confident that King Jesus, the son of David, was the one who could make her daughter whole, even if she only is given a crumb. She knew that was enough. She is a Gentile, and she ran toward the hope of the Gentiles. And what did the hope of the Gentiles finally say? Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. 
and her daughter was healed instantly. That is the power of the king. That is the working of Jesus. Every mom and every dad, take her model for your prayers, for your pleading for your children, for their health and for their souls. Be persistent in asking for mercy for your kids. When God is silent, when God seems slow to answer, do not stop asking for mercy. Do not stop asking that God grabs their souls and makes them whole. That God would do the work to free them and restore them. And everyone here wishing for mercy, wanting mercy and help and desiring compassion, don't stop asking God for help. Everyone who feels stuck and exhausted and worn out, lean in, not out. God wants a conversation with you. And God is the God of compassion and he does not bruise reeds or snuff out wicks. He does not extinguish even the weakest of you. Do not stop talking to him. Do not stop appealing to his character. Your practice of persistence will drive you to the proper response, worshiping on your knees, asking Jesus to be merciful. And sitting at his feet is a great place to be. That is where mercy lies. That is where mercy falls. And friends, you know the character of God far more than this woman did because of this book. She was on the outskirts, distant from the family, and she heard of the son of David and ran toward him crying as she went, pleading for help, and her daughter was healed. She was the faithful outside the family of Israel, and she caught the mercy of Jesus, the son of David. The outsider catches the mercy of the Jewish Messiah. An access to hope has been unbarred. An entrance to mercy has been unlocked. The door to rescue has been opened. And this is startling. Jesus, in this exchange, seems to be pressing all the questions that the Jewish family would ask as the hinge of the book of Matthew is swung. This book is written to convince them, the Jews, that Jesus is the Messiah. And this exchange is positioned at the hinge, the turning point, as though to tease apart their objections to make the reveal all the more grand. As the family reads this, they would likely be nodding their heads to the exchange. The Canaanite cries out, and what does Jesus do? No response, and they read and go, yeah, that makes sense. The Canaanites, they're over there. She cries out, and Jesus says, I'm here for the lost sheep of Israel. And they say, yeah, we're the lost sheep of Israel. Who came for us? Of course he's here for the family. She says, help me. And he says, it is not right to give the children's food to the dogs. And they go, yeah, whoa, yeah. And she says, but even we get the crumbs. And he says, great is your faith. What? The faith of a Canaanite woman is described as great? This is dramatic. This is groundbreaking. The door is open. Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. He is the son of David, the king of a Jewish family. But he is the king for all people. 
and all families. He is the hope of the Gentiles, and the hinge has turned, and the door has swung wide. Mercy does not just fall on the table of the family of Israel. Mercy flows beyond, and Jesus is the hope of the Gentiles as well. He is not the king of just this little family. He is not merely a regional king for a regional people. He is the king of the world. He is not just the sovereign of a locale, but the monarch of all people. He is not just the hope and rescuer of Israel. He is the redeemer and restorer of all creation. The Jewish Messiah is the hope for all of you that have not a drop of Hebrew blood in you. Jesus is the hope for all of you. Friends, regardless of your proximity to the family of God, there is hope for you. We have a particular Messiah, the son of David, a Jewish king, but Jesus is the king of the world. And this right here is the beginning of that proclamation. And if you are on the outskirts, come to Jesus. This moment proves he has mercy for you, that he came for you, that he has hope for you, that he is the hope for us, that he is not just the king of the Jews, but the king for all of us, the king of the world. And the king is so merciful So good that even the crumbs, even the crumbs that fall from the table are gracious. Even the scraps are worthwhile. Even the scraps are good. Even what falls from the table is powerful. That is how grand the Messiah is. That is how great our King is. Even the crumbs are not a diminished gift. The crumbs of mercy healed a severely oppressed little girl from a distance. And next week, we shall see how filling the crumbs can be. But for now, let us pin our hope on Jesus, the son of David, to the one who is the hope of the Gentiles, which is all of us. Jesus, who gives hope to those even outside the family who have faith in him. Have faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this story. Thank you for giving us difficult stories that require us to dig a little bit. And thank you for rewarding us with diamonds. Thank you for preserving the story of this faithful woman and showcasing it to remind us that you came to be merciful to us as well. Lord, thank you for being our hope. Give my friends full trust in you as their hope. Give them a confidence to repeatedly plead to you and give them every reason to pursue you as the God of mercy. Teach us how to agree with you and plead with you and to continue our conversation with you even in the midst of our suffering. Do not allow us to request of you from a distance as though you are a delivery service, but drive us to our knees in worship. Use our suffering to that end. Holy Spirit, use the songs we are about to sing to give us proper response to your illumination of the word and give our hearts a fierce conviction of the hope we have in Jesus, the only place of abundant mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.